This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book, and it is number 10 of the series entitled Spotlight. One of the things that I think we remember is, or should remember, is that there are two aspects that sort of uh, refer to us in the scriptures. One is that in which we delight the glorious message of the high calling of God in Christ, the fact that our life is hid with Christ in God, the blessed hope in front of us, the fact that we are made meet to be inheritors, we are members of the body, and all those blessings that we owe to the Lord through his servant, the apostle, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then on the other hand, we are reminded whether we open the Bible or whether we do not. We are here in a world which is very antagonistic to truth. And this word is described also in simple terms as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So it's to do with the things here as well as to do with the things there. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if everyone that is listening to me now, including myself, have not at some time or the other found in our hearts the thought, why should this happen to me? There are so many that seem to be involved in troubles, sickness, loss, all sorts of difficulties and problems, and so many times the thought is expressed which is down deep in the soul and heart. Why should it happen to me? I don't think I should be wasting time if we can get some help from the scriptures so that if you happen to be the isolated one who never has that thought in your heart, you'll soon meet somebody who has and it will be perhaps a word in season. The first thing I would say, and I think I can say it from the testimony of scripture, one of the reasons why these things happen is that there is a war on. You start the Bible and the first few chapters you have an antagonistic person called a serpent. And you have that serpent in the last book until at last he is dispatched. And because of his high character you cannot dismiss him. He's called the prince of this world and the god of this age. And even Michael, the archangel, durst not bring against him a raiding accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. You do not help the truth of God by minimising the enemy. Now some of us, practically, I suppose most of us, listening to me now, have passed through that period which we call the Great War. And we know what privations there were that came upon folks who had no personal uh, reason to suffer. It seemed to be so indiscriminate. Here we were, stumbling in the blackout, rationed for food, all our uh, messages and letters and phone calls being held up, distorted. Sometimes we wonder whether it was an enemy giving us information to mislead us or not. And all those things are characteristic of the trials that come upon God's people in this great war that's going on between night and darkness, good and evil, the fallen serpent, the Christ of God, and his followers. And so I felt that it would be an opportunity as these meetings 
that I'm taking at the moment are individual, they're not necessarily a series, they're not connected, I thought I would just ventilate this question for a period. You remember that Peter, in his epistle to, the, uh, to those to whom he had a ministry, he said, don't think it's a strange thing that's happened down to you. This is going on in all the world. That's the first thing to remember. While we ourselves are very, very conscious of that which happens to us, it would help us if we remember the man next door or the lady on the other side, she's in the same predicament. And the very fact would help us and help them. I'm not minimising this. I'm facing it and acknowledging that so many times these thoughts arise in our hearts, whether we would or no. <clears throat> now the passage which has proved, first of all, to be a little problem, and then when a bit more carefully translated, gives you some idea of an answer, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now that's one thing to remember. You know, there is a tendency of the uh, human to magnify his own particular complaint. I don't know whether you've ever read of Disraeli, Lord Beaconsfield, a diplomat, if ever there was one, knew that it was rather disconcerting to be introduced to someone that you ought to know, but whose, na whose name you'd forgotten. And he got over it by saying, putting out his hand, he said, well, how's the old complaint? And by the time the person had given them the old complaint, he knew who he was, you see. We all have a tendency to magnify our sicknesses as well as our good qualities. So he says, There hath no temptation or testing taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Well, that's always puzzled me on the surface. I think if you have a way to escape, you don't bear it, do you? And strictly speaking, that's what a good many of us would seek, to get away from it, a way to escape from it. Well, if you escape from it, you don't bear it, do you? Well, in that case, you say, well, I rather wonder whether it would be wise to see just exactly what the original scripture says before we come to a further conclusion. Now, this particular word is found once more in the last chapter of Hebrews. So let's obey the instruction to compare spiritual things with spiritual before we attempt a conclusion. 13th chapter of Hebrews. It's really leading out for much the same thing. I'll read verse 6 so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. But the reason why I'm turning to this passage is in the words that follow. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, and today, and forever. It's the word end. Now you know full well that it doesn't mean something that they leave off. This is the goal of their conversation. Shall I say it's the issue of their conversation? And when I say that, I've come back to this passage, the issue. 
That word way to escape is the issue, the end. Not the termination, but the reason for it. You see, the word issue has that double meaning in English. It helps us. You see the water issuing from a rock, pouring out, and you say that's the issue of this meeting, the goal we have in view. So, the translators took the thought that we'll make it a way to escape. Well, there's no escape here. It's the issue. Now we come back again and reread it, shall we? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. That's one thing. The back and the burden is known to him. And then follows, but will, with the temptation, shape the end, that you may be able to bear it. Isn't that the burden of the question, why has it happened to me? If only they could see there was an end in view that could justify it, it would satisfy so much. So, we're just taking the word a little bit more near to its original meaning, and it's not that you escape it, but the issue of it is in the hand of God before he allows it to touch you. Supposing we think of that book to which we, are, we shall be turned uh, in this, at uh, some time or other, the epistle of James. He speaks about the sufferings, and he says you have seen the end of the Lord. And then refers you to the book of Job. Suppose we look there. Chapter 5 of the epistle of James, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and ye have seen the end of the Lord. Now this is not the same word end, but it's the same idea. You mustn't look at the book of Job and think only of his sufferings. You must look at the book of Job and see the goal that was in front of God, and see the why, the reason why the whole sufferings fell upon that devoted man. There is one chapter which Job never read, never knew, until perhaps later. One chapter which is Three companions didn't know. They looked at him and saw him suffering so much and some said you must be a secret sinner and rebelled against that. And they said all sorts of reasons. But the one reason that's given in chapter 1 where Satan entered into the presence of God and challenged God with regard to Job's integrity. Now, you may say that's fantastic, but it's written. And the whole of the book of Job takes on a different complexion when we realise that that is the foreground of it all, leading right through to the end. And there are two, there are two sections, few, a few verses in Job, which I like to link together and which we'll do immediately. Shall we turn to Job chapter 19 and then from there go on to a chapter which is in the same vicinity. I'm saying it like that because I may not give you the right number of the chapter. You understand that, don't you? Job 19, those words which are so well known and perhaps not so well known as they should be. Verse 25 For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. 
and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I will not interrupt our thoughts by uh, suggesting a little different rendering of verse 26. I know that my Redeemer liveth. And side by side with that wonderful knowledge is another passage where he said he didn't know. And that is in chapter 23. He says in verse 8 of chapter 23, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, and I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. So I put those two together and I say, anybody who can take both of these passages, they've got a couple of texts to carry them right through life to the day of glory. I know, and he knows, I know that my Redeemer liveth, but I don't know all the complexities of life. I do not know all the answers to the problem, but he knows the way that I take and when he hath tried me, when he hath tried me. Isn't that a part of the story? Cast your mind back to the children of Israel delivered from Egypt by the Passover lamb, going through the miraculous journey of the Red Sea, opened for them, led by the Spirit of God day and all the light by night and the fire by day through their journeys. And yet, the scripture says of God, I, I suffered thee to hunger. We can understand God saying, I fed you with bread or manna in the wilderness. But he says both. He says the God that gave you the manna withheld thee food. But why? Well, he tells you, I suffered thee to hunger. I fed you with bread from heaven that you may know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So you see, there's a light, isn't there? Again, these trials and problems that we have to face, they're hard to bear, the scripture says so. But all surely the pain is eased a bit. Where we are not so baffled with regard to why it should be, where we say, well, the same God is ruling both sides. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, when he has tried me, what does he say? I shall come forth as gold. And this word try means to try a metal. Peter uses the same thing. He says, the trial of your faith, which is much more precious than gold that perisheth, the trial of your faith, in a crucible. And you can understand this so much easier if you think of the primitive crucible that Job would have in view. He hadn't got those tremendous scientific inventions that we have today. He had a simple earthen pot. He had a simple charcoal fire and a very primitive form of bellows that he worked with his foot or his hand as he sat cross-legged. And here's the story coming out into an idiom which makes it seem so full to us. How did he know 
when the metal he was uh, testing was now free from dross? Well, the simple answer is he didn't have thermometers and he didn't have other mechanical methods. He knew it was complete when he could see the reflection of his own face. Oh, surely you say there's a double meaning there for me. If in all my temptations and problems and difficulties I gradually become more and more like unto him so that he sees the reflection of his own image. And the moment that image is there, the fire ceases. Not one further stroke. That's the reason. So God is not unkind, but he's preparing us for glory. And these disciplines are very, very essential and very, very necessary. And so we have the idea that we haven't got a way to escape so that we bear it. God is shaping the issue so we can bear it. He knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried thee, I shall come forth as gold. He says, I see there's an end, therefore I can more patiently endure. Let's take another similar argument from the epistle to the Hebrews. And some of us, as we look back to our youthful days, may have a bit more sympathy with it than others. I refer to Hebrews chapter 12. Now it's very possible that in this chapel and among those who listen to this tape recording, there are those who were exemplary children, very, very obedient, never doing anything wrong, never getting into trouble. Well, possibly you sized the speaker tonight up a little bit and you think to yourself, well, I'd hardly think that would fit his early days. So we leave it to speak for itself and come to this passage with which I have a certain amount of sympathy. Hebrews 12, verse 11. Or oh, we must go back. He says, suppose we start at verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son that he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof ye are all partakers, then ye are bastards, you have no father to look after you. You're running afresh, you're running amok. And while if you were children, you may envy the boy who's out there in the street and nobody bothers about him, and you've had a good hiding because you're being corrected, yet you're the one that's being blessed because you've got a father that corrects you, and he's the one that's going down the hill that leads to destruction unless there's a divine intervention. So the scripture goes on to say, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of our spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. And that is hardly a good word. It doesn't mean to say they delighted in it. But it was the thing that they had to do. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Partakers of his holiness is a goal. I shall come forth as gold, said Job. 
The trial of your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, that it may be to the praise and the honour of his glory in that day. All you see there is a great goal in view. So he says, that you might be partakers of his holiness. Now he comes back to speak in terms more to do with ourselves and our attitude. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. It would be contrary to truth, wouldn't it, if the scripture said that chastening all was lovely. Well, you say that's not according to truth. No, he says, I agree with you. No chastening is joyous, but rather grievous. But he says, look, there's an afterwards. Nevertheless, afterwards. It's the afterwards that matter. There you have the way of escape, or the end. You've seen the end of the Lord, and the patience of Job. It's the afterwards that you must keep in mind, not the present. And if in the present affliction you could have the afterwards before your mind and your heart, oh, what a difference it would make to you, and what a difference it could make to those who come to you for sympathy. So he says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous, nevertheless afterward. It yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now there's one clause that we must remember. Unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, that may be the key word to much prolonged suffering. One of God's children is immediately exercised. He doesn't have a whine in his voice, but he has a why in his prayer. Oh Lord, why? Where have I departed from the truth? Show me thy way. Lead me in a plain path. That's one. He's exercised by it. And because he's truly exercised, it begins to be taken away. The discipline has done its work. But if on the other hand, you're continually being scourged, and you never sort of put up the prayer, teach me, O Lord, thy way, show me where I've gone wrong, it'll be continuous. And it's rather interesting, as you know I've got a penchant for discovering what is called the structure of Scripture, that there is another passage which just exactly balances this with the word exercise, that I think we ought to turn back to while we have Hebrews opened. Chapter 5 is referring to the fact that some of these believers have been a long time reaching maturity. Let me pick it up from um, verse 11 of chapter 5. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk, and not a strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised. You see, the babe has senses. It can see. It can hear. It can touch. But it doesn't interpret them. If it sees the moon through the window, it tries to grab it. You see, its senses were not exercised. But if you have your senses exercised, you've reached adulthood. And so, he says, 
to discern both good and evil. Therefore, don't stop. Therefore, leaving the principles, this is referring to verse 12, you need that one teach you again which be the first principles. You're still going back to the milk. You haven't advanced. You haven't grown. You can't take a full diet. So he says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. And that word perfection is very similar to verse 14, full age. Let's grow up. And so, you've got all these passages of scripture with these various symbols and references that should help us as we sometimes have to help others who are in distress. Shall we turn now to the first of Peter, chapter 1. The first of Peter, chapter 1. I've partly quoted it, but I think I would like it to speak for itself a bit more definitely. He's speaking about the inheritance which is preserved for them, their blessings that they have in Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 6, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though, now for a season, if need be, and I have just retranslated this for my own benefit to make it easier to say, for a season, and a reason, need be is a reason. Let's take those two. It's for a season. That's meaning a definite period, not forever. Weeping, as the scripture says, weeping may endure for a night. But supposing it does, joy cometh in the morning. So you can say, as some friends have had to say, when they've been told by the doctor that the illness they suffer with is incurable. We've heard about our brother Inberg. Well, he has to deprive himself of a sweet cake when he wants it because of the limitations he's under. But when he was told by the doctor he got it for the rest of his life, he said, oh, only for the rest of the life, that's all right then, you see. It depends, doesn't it, on your point of view. Another person might say, well, I've got to have that all my life, have I? The same period of time. What a different attitude. It's for a season. And then, oh, friends, revelation. No more written across pain, sigh, crying, sorrow, death, no more. It's for a season. And it's for a reason, if need be, a reason. You could depend upon it even though God doesn't always explain to you. Or if he does, you don't quite understand. Or if he says, I do not explain to you because you must walk by faith and not by sight sometimes. That there is a reason. A reason in yourself, a reason because of your associates, a reason because of your place in the great purpose of God. Oh, what a difference it would make to us and turn our grumblings into thanksgivings if we could only keep those thoughts in mind. It's for a season, a limited time, and it's for a reason it's got a place in God's purpose. So I come back with a great deal of sympathy to the person who is ignorant of this blessed truth and hope that I'm able to help them if they're listening, and to help you if you're going to help them, to show them that it's just a part of the fact that there's a war on, and God himself is waiting patiently. Our Saviour is at the right hand of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And then at long last we read, then cometh the end. 
Then shall the Son himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God, not Father, not Son, not Spirit, but God, in a sense that we cannot put together in Scripture yet, because we don't know enough, that God may be all in all. So there is a feeling now, if these things are a part of God's truth, then it looks as though we may be able to say, put those scriptures before me, continually remind me of them, help me to put them before others with a tenderness, don't give lectures, enter into it, and help them over this style. And lastly, because our time will soon be up, Romans the fifth chapter. Now here we have that mighty epistle which is directed so much to ourselves with regard to its doctrine. <laughs> Taking this point of view, chapter 5. <clears throat> the first part of Romans is chapter 1 to 5, ending at verse Oh, somewhere down about 14, 13. Chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is something, not only the peace of God, but we have peace with God. And friends, this peace with God can go on unaltered, undiminished, even though you're suffering. there be two sides of your nature, as it were. One moaning because of the suffering you're going through, the other rejoicing because nothing from heaven or hell or earth can spoil the peace of God that's based upon the justifying work of Christ. It's easy to say that when things are going smoothly, but it's good to keep it in mind even though you can't always live up to it when something descends that is not quite, quite so bearable. So we'll read a bit further. Therefore, being justified, now, Inasmuch as the whole bearing of chapters 1 to 4 is that we're justified by faith, there is a possibility that he didn't say, therefore being justified by faith. He said, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's the same faith that, that justifies you, the same faith carries you on to peace with God and carries you right through the whole lot. You're not losing anything, friends through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Oh, what a position we've got. We have peace with God, we have access into this grace wherein we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All oh, friends, it begins to make you feel ashamed to think that sometimes there's a little murmur come because of this or that or the other in the affairs of health or daily life or what not. Well, this is true of every believer in Christ at the present time. They have this access, they have this peace, they have this hope. And then he says, and not only so. Ah, now, this is where the rub comes. And not only so. Oh, I must stop for a minute. I said, there's the rub. A good many people don't know what that means. That's borrowed from the game of bowls when Shakespeare you said there's the rub just as you think it's going to turn that way it goes that way because of an unevenness that's like life there's the rub he says not only so not only this faith not only this peace not only this access not only this grace not only this hope not only so but we glory in tribulations also would you say you're a strange person to glory in tribulations 
Ah, but he says, I'm the same one that wrote the words nevertheless afterwards. I'm the same one that is telling you about weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. That's the Spirit of God speaking through the different writers of the Scriptures. And Paul has said these things. Not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. Why? There are some people who of course do glory in tribulations in a wrong sense. Another way of speaking about them is that they're only happy when they're miserable. And they want you to know they're miserable and they try to make you miserable as well. Well, that's not a Christian attitude. You've got to bear with them, of course. But it says, knowing. What do we know? And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Is there anybody listening to me here or presently who has all the patience of the world, all the patience that they need, day by day, night by night? You have heard of the patience of Job? Well, very few of us would say, oh, that just writes me off to a T. Patience is a wonderful discipline. One of the first things that the Apostle Paul put forward when he gave a list of his qualifications to be an apostle was the word patience. And so we have here Patience. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience. And experience, hope. Oh, we're back again. It takes you around in a circle. Yes, but now you know it in the sense you wouldn't know it before. It's one thing to read a word in a book. It's another thing to know it because you've passed that way. That's what he's saying. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And so he goes on. So I felt that it may be a word in season for the meeting here, for you and for me, and for those who will afterwards share this meeting in the tape recording, that there is a war on, and consequently we, we must expect to have limitations and privations which are not, we haven't merited them ourselves, but we belong to this calling. And we have the example of our Saviour and the Apostles and the example of our, of our great Apostle Paul, what he endured for Christ's sake. And then we have the final. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me a crown. Or when that day comes, even though we do not get to a crown, even though it's just standing in that glory, accepting the beloved, then we'll be able to look back on the path we've trodden and say, he knew the way that I took. And when he tried me, by the mercy of God, I have come forth as gold. So I commend, and especially the revised rendering of that passage, that he doesn't make a way to escape but all the way through your testing, remind yourselves that he is shaping the end. And the moment you know he's got an end in view, it takes a good deal of the sharpness of the suffering.